So let me, let me dive. We're going to dive right in. We're in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to dive right in. We'll be in chapter 5. If you guys want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray uh, for our time together uh, that the Holy Spirit would help. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedom of the gospel. We ask that you would give our hearts and our souls strength to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel and the grace that is so free in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, help me to preach with power and conviction, joy, compassion, with a pastoral heart, with clarity, and would you make our hearts ready to receive your word. We love you, Jesus. We worship you today. In your name I pray, amen. So chapter five, first phrase. I could preach an hour on the first phrase, but we're not gonna do just the first phrase. We're gonna do verses one through 15. You should memorize the first phrase of chapter five, for freedom Christ has set us free. Uh, I never wanna preach a sermon that I have not preached to my own soul. Numerous times I just sat in a chair, sat at my desk here at the church, and just declared that to my own soul. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It is jam-packed with gospel freedom. There's freedom at the beginning, and there's freedom at the end, and right smack dab in the middle is who? It is Christ. Because Christ is the X factor. And I actually looked up what an X factor was, because I knew I was going to say that in the sermon, is the one variable introduced into a circumstance that greatly impacts the outcome. And our circumstances that we were enslaved to sin and to the oppression of God's law, and the, the, the variable was Christ, and the outcome was freedom in the gospel. In Christ, because of Jesus, we have been set free from something, and we have been set free to something. You can see that right at the beginning of the verse. It says, for freedom, that is freedom to something, Christ has set us free from something. So what has Christ set us free from? Number one, Christ has set us free from the oppression of God's law. Without Christ, God's law was like a giant mountain that we are all trying to ascend with our efforts, and God was, as it were, standing at the top of the mountain with the Mona Lisa expression on his face. Why? Because his smile, his approving smile of you was hanging in the balance. It wasn't smiling, it wasn't frowning. It was waiting to see if, what you, if you had what it took to make it to the top. Without Christ, God's law is an oppressive tyrant using fear and threats to keep you in submission one more day at a time. And every single time you slip, the curse of God's law continues to build and build and build. And it's hanging over you without Christ. But in Galatians chapter 2, it declares the joy of the gospel. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a cross. Christ gladly bore the curse that was yours and put an end to the oppression of the law as a means of achieving righteousness. This is huge. He put an end 
to the oppression of God's law as a means of you achieving righteousness by providing another one for free. He comes down the mountain and he says, stop trying, cease your striving, sinner. You can have my son's righteousness for free. And how do you access this righteousness? By faith and faith alone. So Christ has freed us from the oppression of God's law. What has he then set us free to? Set us free from the oppression of God's law. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What has he set us free from? Excuse me, what has he set us free to? Christ has set us free to live restfully under his grace. He's freed us to live restfully under his grace. With Christ, the fear of God's curse is taken away. With Christ, you discover that God is is not an oppressive tyrant, but is actually your father who delights in you. And he's actually proud to call you his own. Your father may not be proud of you, but this father in Christ is proud of you. The demands of God's law in Christ have been perfectly upheld. There's one human being who has ever walked the face of this earth who has upheld the demands of God's law perfectly. And it is Jesus. He lived his whole entire life, as it were, not for himself, but for you. To establish the very righteousness you need to gain access into the kingdom of glory with Christ. And so by faith in Christ, I am now legally Christ's brother. He is my big brother in heaven. And so his inheritance is now mine. And it's coming from me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The Spirit of God is in me now. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There is freedom. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts with such prodigality. Such excessiveness, such lavishness that your heart explodes with joy and obedience to God. And you say with David in Psalm 119 verse 32, listen to this verse. I will run in the way of your commandments for you have set my heart free. I preach that verse to me almost every morning. Lord, set my heart free. Enlarge my heart that I will actually run in the way of your commandments. I will not... I will not hesitantly, begrudgingly walk in obedience to you, but I will freely run in obedience to you, for you have set my heart free. So Paul declares the entire points of Galatians. Galatians chapter one, verse, excuse me, chapter five, verse one. This first phrase, it is the entire book of Galatians, jam-packed into one phrase. It is the gospel, it is your life, it is your joy. And Paul, as it were, builds this foundation in this first phrase, and he stands up on it, and he declares his main point. Look at the second half, verse 1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the main point of this whole passage. What's, this, what's, what's the main point of this passage? Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. And so the title of my sermon, if, you got note, if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, you could write this down. The title of my sermon is Grace Stands Firm. 
Grace stands firm in the freedom of the gospel. And the rest of this passage, Paul gives us three reasons why you should stay standing in the freedom of the gospel. Three reasons. He says, for freedom Christ has set you free. You stand there and you stay there. Here's three reasons why. Reason number one. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel lest you fall away. Read with me in verses two through six. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Look at verse four. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away. There's my point. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verses 2 through 4 are the clearest verses in the entire book of Galatians about the nature of this false teaching that was infecting this church. Listen carefully. They were not preaching circumcision in place of Christ. They were preaching circumcision in addition to Christ. They weren't replacing circumcision with Christ. They were preaching, yes, believe in Jesus, but you got to add one little tiny thing. And just so, if you have not been with us in Galatians this series, there have been some people in this, this church in Galatia that are preaching that, yes, you should believe in Jesus, but you need to add one little tiny work. And don't get hung up on the word circumcision. The issue, the thing that, the issue that Paul has is not that they were uh, circumcision per se, but the fact that they were trying to add anything at all to Christ. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this is what Paul has to say about anyone in the entire world who says you have to do Jesus plus something, anything. This is what he has to say. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you try to help Jesus do his job, Jesus will not do his job. I testify again to every man, verse 3, who accepts circumcision. That is, you try to add one little tiny thing that you are obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, you are severed from Christ, you who be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That little phrase right smack dab in the middle, in between the two commas, you who would be justified by the law, he's clarifying who he's specifically talking to. And you notice he doesn't say, you are severed from Christ, you who have committed the super sin. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be attempting to save yourself. What cuts you off from Christ is an attempt to add your own goodness. No amount of badness can sever you from Jesus. Is that not good news? 
what is so shocking about the gospel is not that if you outright reject it, you're condemned. It's that you, if you tried to add the tiniest little work to it, you are condemned. There are two options. Get right with God on your own or through Christ alone. And if you choose one, you forsake the other. And the problem is that one is literally unbearable and un- impossible. If you anxiously nibble on the law of works to get yourself right with God, you must realize you have to swallow the whole thing. That's what he says in verse 3, right? Every man who accepts circumcision, you take, you take this one little nibble here, he is obligated to keep the whole law. you got to swallow the whole thing. And no man can do that. If you give the law an inch, it will take a mile. Listen carefully, Church of Bergen. Christ will do all, or he will do nothing. If you want to add something, Christ will do nothing. But if you are willing to do nothing, Christ will do everything. If you want to smuggle in some good works beyond the borders of heaven, Christ will back off entirely and do nothing for you. And on that day, there is one person you want to be connected to. There's one person you want to have connections with, and it's Jesus. There is one person who has, deserves to walk through the blazing glory of God's kingdom. Christ alone has earned VIP access into the presence of God. The righteous one. And the only way you're going to walk into those gates of glory, into eternal joy with Jesus, is if you are somehow united to the righteous one. And the only access point to Jesus, here's Paul's point. It is faith and faith alone. And if you try to add one thing, the connection is broken. The cord is unplugged. And the saving power of Jesus is gone. Now in verses 5 through 6, Paul argues for the point he just made in verses 2 through 4, which is this. If you try to add human works to Christ's work, even as small as something like circumcision, you lose Christ and fall away from grace. Now here's the question. Why, why is it that if I try to add something that I will fall away from grace? Here's, what, here's Paul's argument. In order to understand this, though, to answer this question, you have to realize that You have to remember that people were teaching that by adding circumcision, you could complete your righteousness in this life. Remember back in Galatians 3, verse 3, when Pastor Mike preached on it? Having begun by the Spirit, he says, oh foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? They were teaching that you could somehow perfect a sufficient righteousness here in this life. But Paul is going to say that the righteousness they are trying to achieve in this life can only be received in the next life. Listen to verses 5 through 6. Excuse me, verse 5. For, so here's his argument. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope 
of righteousness. This righteousness that Paul is saying that we hope for is the righteousness that these false teachers were telling people that they could get here in this life. And that same phrase, look at verse 5, that same phrase, eagerly wait. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. Listen. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, same word, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he uses the same idea of waiting. We are waiting for that day when Jesus Christ will return and he will renew our bodies and this righteousness that we are hoping for will now be ours when Jesus Christ comes back. Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 13 says something similar. It says, but according to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's coming later. And Paul is saying you can't not achieve righteousness in this life. If you think you can perfect it now, you're going to lose it later. You have fallen away from grace. And notice he even says, what are we using to wait? What are we waiting for? What are we hoping? What is this? How are we waiting for this hope of righteousness? He says through the Spirit by faith. Why by faith? Because then God gets the glory. When you get to heaven, can you imagine heaven being filled with people who think they deserve to be there? That is miserable. Everyone's going to be patting themselves in the back. Great work, man. You did a great job. Great job helping that lady across the road, whatever it was. It sounds like hell to me. When you get to heaven you will realize that you did nothing to get there. And you're going to melt in humility. And all the praise and all the glory and all the honor is going to go to Jesus. And we will be infinitely happier for that. Then in verse 6, Paul gives an additional reason for why Christians wait for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, 4. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That is, the only thing that matters in Christ is faith that manifests itself in a life of love. The life of love does not save you. It merely demonstrates, improves, and gives evidence that you have the kind of faith that justifies. That's the same kind of faith that James chapter 2 talks about, the living faith. The life of love that flows out of the living faith. That life of love is not the basis upon which God looks at you and declares you just. He looks upon Christ's righteousness in which your faith is trusting. And that is what he deems you righteous by. So we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's verse 5. And in Christ the only thing that counts is an inward reality of faith, not something distinctive on the outside like circumcision or uncircumcision. Paul flips this false teaching right on its head. And he says, you want to talk about circumcision? You want to talk about the true people of God? Because that's how the people in the Old Testament were, were marked out as the true people of God. 
by circumcision. He comes along in the New Testament and says, you know what, if you, you want to talk about circumcision, the true people of God are those who are not circumcised on the outside, those who are circumcised in their hearts. This is great news because Christianity is not about fitting into a box of people's expectations, but about God's grace transforming you on the inside. The only thing that matters is faith that's alive, working through love. That's the first reason why God, Paul tells you to stand firm. So stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, number one, lest you fall away. Number two, stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, lest you be irrelevant. Look with me at verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, this is the huge phrase, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12 is very interesting. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. What? <laughs> okay. I know you all are wondering about this verse. First of all, this verse is not the main point. So Bible study tip, don't get hung up on verses that are not the main point. But, verse 12, let's just be honest, it's a very shocking verse. But rather than wonder if Paul has a right to say such a thing, why don't you consider that how serious must this issue be that a spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ would speak this way? Paul's point is this. Pardon my language. If you really want to slice someone's manhood, that's what circumcision is, right? If you really want to slice someone's manhood, it would be far better for them to just cut off their own because then at least no one would be cut off from Christ. That's what they're teaching. you got to slice and dice. <laughs> Sorry. That was not in the manuscript. I just went off a little bit there. That was not in the manuscript. If you really want to go there, why don't you just cut it off yourself? Because then no one's going to be severed from Christ. That's what he says in verse 4, right? You are severed from Christ. It's like a play on words. You're teaching this, but by teaching this, people are being cut off from Christ. That's his point. Enough of verse 12. So they were running free in the gospel of grace, verse 7, first, first sentence, you were running well. They were running. They were standing in the freedom of the gospel. But someone through false teaching began to put weight on their backs and made them stop running. Verse 7 again, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And this false teaching has been infecting the whole entire church. It says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You try to add some works, it's going to spread like wildfire and just take over and kill the church. And evidently they were claiming that Paul was preaching the same thing too. He says in verse 11, look at verse 11. 
But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So they were claiming that Paul was joining them in this message. And then Paul says something very interesting in the second half of verse 11, which is where I'm getting my point, that if you stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, lest you become irrelevant. Look at the second half of verse 11. In that case, here's the question. In what case? What he just said. If I still preach circumcision, if I, if I preach as they do, that you have to add something to Christ's work, in that case, in the case in which I apparently, they're claiming, am preaching that you have to add something to Christ's work, if that is the case, what does he say? the offense of the cross is removed. There is an offensiveness to the cross of Christ. There is a a natural offensiveness to the cross. As long as you're not being a jerk and you're faithfully declaring the cross to people, there is a sense in which no matter what you say, no matter how kind you are, they will be offended by it. Here's why. Because the cross of Jesus Christ humiliates mankind by graphically portraying just how sinful we are. You and I are so sinful that Christ had to have his son cursed and condemned upon a criminal's cross. That is offensive, but it's the truth. Another reason why it's offensive It's also an offense because the cross is the only place God will save you. You must bow your knee to a man mangled upon a cross. And you dare not bring any of your works. You bring only your sin and only your shame. And only then, then and only then, will God save you. That is utterly offensive To uptight, upstanding, I am an American, I can do it on my own, thank you very much. That is utterly offensive to our culture. But this is the hard edge that Paul is trying to preserve. And if Paul is saying, what is he saying? He's saying, if I say, well, you got to add something else, that's not very offensive. Because what you're saying is, you aren't really that sinful, and, by the, and also, on top of that, you have what it takes in and of yourself to, to make yourself right with God. That is not offensive at all. It is very irrelevant. It is very predictable. Because the essence of the message is you, by your own efforts, can secure your right standing with God. And the cross comes along and says, you lay that down. Cast off all your trust and good estimations of yourself. Admit you are hopeless before God and humble yourself, bringing nothing before the cross. And Christ is a mighty Savior in that moment. The most irrelevant preaching is one that says, you got to have some faith, but you got to sprinkle in some works and just stay out of trouble. That is so boring. That is so irrelevant. I don't, why would I need that? I'm I'm good enough on my own, thank you. If we preach that, then Jesus 
would rightfully be ignorable. But the most head-turning, perplexing, unignorable, relevant message is the cross. Why? Because the gospel confronts you with who you really are to give you who you really need. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is the most relevant message in the world because it confronts you with who you really are to give you who you really need, and that is Jesus Christ. And Paul is zealous. Don't, do not stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. You start adding something, it becomes an irrelevant message. There's no offensive to it. There's no edge to it. It doesn't cut through the soul. And on top of this, it's supposed to be proclaimed by humble people who are willing to be persecuted. It's what Paul says. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? One of the reasons you and I are so afraid of sharing a gospel with family members and our neighbors and our, fa- and our coworkers is because we are afraid of the mild persecution that we'll receive. But you must know that resilience in the face of persecution contributes to the power of the message that we preach. And where do you get this resilience? You get it by standing firm in the freedom of the gospel. You know that the love of Christ has been poured into your hearts unconditionally. So everything you have, everything you need is in Christ. You have God's approval. And so you will gladly take an awkward look You will gladly take an awkward, silent moment at the Thanksgiving table because you just want uncle so-and-so or you just want aunt so-and-so or you just want my brother-in-law or sister-in-law. I just want them to know Jesus. And you're willing to take the disapproval of other people because you have the undeserved approval of God's smile in Christ. So stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, lest you become irrelevant. Number three, last but not least, and here's where we'll end. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, lest you kill the church. Verse 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15 is where I get my point. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The freedom of the gospel of grace, justification that you are counted righteous, by faith and faith alone is the key to unleashing a life of love. That's what he says. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Justification by faith alone, the freedom of the gospel, is the liberating power that makes you a loving person with no strings attached. How does that work, though? And I want to answer this question. How, how, does, how does the freedom of the gospel, how does that work? How does the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of justification by faith alone, 
in Christ alone. Why does that liberate me to be a free lover of people? And I want to illustrate this with a very, very uh, well-known parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and I'm not, I want to come at it from a different angle. In the parable of the prodigal son, when the younger brother returns home in utter shame to his father, think about the shame that he felt. Think about the anxious fear he felt about the weight of his father's crushing disapproval when he got home. When the younger brother returns home in shame to his father only to be hugged, tighter by his father than any prostitute he ever embraced, only to be kissed with more intimate affection than any other woman he had a one-night stand with. When he was washed in the freedom of his father's grace, do you think that in that moment he said, whew, that was close. I thought I was in big trouble. I'm going to the bar to get lit. Who's coming with me? And I got his credit card. Who's coming with me? He didn't say that. How generous do you think that young man became after being washed in his father's grace? How warm and welcoming do you think he became to the outsider after being welcomed home by his father? How tender-hearted and humble do you think he became after he witnessed his father, the king of the country, humiliate himself by running with his skirt up to his son? The son was then freed from the curse of his previous life, yet he did not use that freedom to revert to his old cursed life, but to live in the freedom of the gospel for the rest of his life. He became a liberated lover of people because his father's love had been poured into his heart. So the same is with us. For you know Christ that though he was rich, he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. How generous ought we to be. You know that you were welcomed by how, how welcoming should we be to the outsider, the one who's awkward and weird when we have been welcomed home by the father through Jesus Christ. How tender-hearted and humble must you and I be, knowing that, that though Christ was equal with God, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Now, Paul ends the passage with a very poisonous person. The poisonous person is the person who does not stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. And that can be illustrated by the older brother. A poisonous person in the church is one who suffers from an older brother complex. The older brother in the parable is the most miserable person in the story. After he saw his father welcome him into the home, back into the kingdom, throw a party for him. You guys know the story. It says in verse 28, Luke chapter 15. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. But he answered his father, look, 
These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He was clinging to his pseudo-goodness as a reason to twist God's arm, to twist his father's arm to earn something. And all the older brother had to do was see his father calling him to freedom. Listen to verse 31. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. He's calling him to freedom. And because he refuses to accept the freedom of the gospel, he is outside of the party. Some of you, I regret to say this, some of you are still pouting outside while the party is on the inside of the gospel. And here's why. Because you, like the older brother, want a goat for your goodness instead of the gospel of his grace. You want a goat for your goodness. I've been a good boy, a good girl, and I want a goat. And God's saying, you can have the riches of my grace, son. And you want a goat? We must all today, today, this is not a do sermon. This is a done sermon. This is not a sermon that, tell me what to do, pastor. No, no, no. You stand in the freedom of the gospel. That's what you do today. You stand there and you stay there and you bask in God's infinite grace towards you in Christ. You stand there and you get washed in it. We must lay down our efforts to prove something. Because what you're trying to prove has already been provided in Christ. And you have only to receive it by looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. For your rich love and grace for your infinite kindness in Jesus. Forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we have bought the lie that somehow we can win your favor by contributing to what Jesus has already done in the cross. I pray for hearts this morning who are wearied who are trying to climb up the mountain of God's law, not realizing that the approval they're trying to earn has already been provided in Jesus. And they have only to lay hold of him this morning. Just to lay hold of him, that is all. I pray for those who are in Christ and who have begun to be tempted by the older brother complex and have begun to buy the lie that they somehow have been kicked out by some sin. And they feel like they have to work their way back into your good graces. Help them to see that in Christ Jesus, you, like the, like the father in the prodigal son's story, ran to them, are running to them, and not waiting for them to run to you. 
Help us, Lord Jesus, to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel this morning. And it, may, it would liberate us to become a loving people for the sake of North Jersey. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.